you guys, just imagine what the harmony is going to be like when we can take these masks off and sing. What a gift to be with you on such a beautiful day. Uh, thank you, Scott, for the tribute. I don't know. I, re I heard it as a, I received it as a tribute. Whether that was the intention or not, I don't know. I, I did have in my notes today, actually in my notes, good morning, lovelies. So, good morning, lovelies. I am the true Nelson. <laughs> I am one of the pastors here as well, like Scott is, and we're continuing this morning uh, in our uh, series called The Deeply Formed Life, based on Rich Villadis' book by the same title. If you are brand new to Artisan, you're wondering who Rich Villadis is, what this book's about, you might want to look up uh, the intro to the series, which is available as a podcast on our website. And also, just in case anyone is wondering what Rich Villadis and his family are dressing up as, for Halloween, thanks to Instagram, uh, we have that information. So here's a little image from left to right, Ted Lasso, uh, a 1920s flapper girl, Kylo Ren is the short one, and Harriet Potter, as they put it in their caption. So there we go. I know we all wanted to know. The Villitas family on Halloween. So this morning, we get to talk about sexual wholeness for a culture that splits bodies from souls. As with every one of the five values in the book, we are exploring this one with a view toward how we have been and are being formed by culture, by our family of origin, and what it might look like to be more deeply formed into the image of Christ, as Paul writes in Galatians as his deep passion. That's what he wants most, that Christ would be formed in us. So that's the framework. And let's be clear, this is one sermon for now. I just feel compelled to say that. In a couple of weeks, we're going to follow this up with some deeply formed practices of sexual wholeness. And it's our hope to do a fuller, more wide-ranging series sometime in the not-too-distant future on sexuality. We need such a series We've wanted to do one for a while, but for now, please know that I know you are likely holding questions that this particular teaching moment will not get to. And so, um, even so, I, I do hope and I trust that God will have something resonant for each of us, that love will actively be moving and wooing us further into wholeness as fully embodied sexual beings. So with that in mind, can we agree to lean in together, to tend to our own bodies and minds and hearts and tend to one another in the spirit? Let's begin by asking for God's help. God, almighty Lord of glory, as we've just been singing, thank you for the gift of our bodies. Thank you for making us sexual beings. Thank you for the wisdom of our bodies, which is in us because we are made in your image. Thank you also for the wisdom of your spirit. We trust you to meet us here today. Amen. It's an image of another guy you might recognize. In 2016, after the pop icon Prince died, a New York Times article came out entitled Prince's Holy Lust. The writer suggested that the two keys to understanding this man and his music are his sexuality and his spirituality. 
the article quotes, quotes Prince's tour manager who said that for Prince, the love of God and the sexual urges we feel are one and the same somehow. For Prince, it all comes from the same root inside a human being. God planted these urges, and it's never wrong to feel that way. The urge itself is a holy urge. Now, we may look at Prince's life and rightly wonder whether his understanding of sexuality and spirituality always reflected the sexual ethic of Jesus. And in response to such wonderings, I would say, is there a single one of us who is without fault in keeping such understandings aligned? Whatever else we might want to say, Prince is absolutely spot on about the importance of integrating these two powerful realities of life. However imperfectly he may have explored the relationship between these two themes through his music, I agree with Villadas that we need to pay close attention to the relationship between sexuality and spirituality if we are to live this life well. So Prince was right in this, at the very least, that our sexuality and spirituality are connected. Unfortunately, the church hasn't always been great at maintaining this connection. In time, at times, we've been terrible at it, which is one reason why many of us have a hard time engaging in any meaningful conversation along these lines. As Villadas puts it, we struggle to live with a mature, deeply human and humane, anxiety-free vision of our bodies as it relates to our spirituality. Do you feel that? I feel that. So how might we rejoin our spirituality and our sexuality in ways that lead to greater wholeness in our relationship with God and each other? What even is sexuality and what is spirituality? We're going to look at some definitions of these words, but first let's name the fact that at the heart of the relationship between these two things are desire and longing. And I think it's vitally important to ground ourselves in some good theology around these concepts as well. Because this is another area that the church has often done us a disservice. A lot of that is hinged on a poor understanding of what it means that humans are made in the image and likeness of God, as our scriptures tell us in Genesis 1 and 26. This is original goodness. This is the starting point. This is square one. It's our biblical ground zero. And everything else I contend that we read about ourselves in scripture needs to be filtered through this lens. My favorite Celtic theologian, John Philip Newell, says it this way. The image of God is at the core of our being. And like the garden... It has not been destroyed. It may have been covered over or lost sight of, but it is at the beginning of who we are. A 19th century teacher in the Celtic world, Alexander Scott, used the analogy of royal garments. In his day, royal garments were woven through with a costly thread made of gold. And if somehow that golden thread were taken out of the garment, the whole thing would unravel. 
In the same way Scott contends, the image of God is woven into the fabric of our being, and if it were taken out of us, we would unravel. We would cease to exist. Newell again. So, the image of God is not simply a characteristic of who we are, which may or may not be there, depending on whether or not we have been baptized. The image of God is the essence of our being. It is the core of the human soul. We are sacred not because we have been baptized or because we belong to one faith tradition over another. We are sacred because we have been born. Whew. Yeah, that's some good stuff. I keep wondering how the history of Christianity would have turned out if we'd really understood and embodied this single core truth. We're going to stick with Newell a bit because I think it's crucial that our understanding of sexuality and spirituality, and because it's been such a helpful corrective to some of the assumptions I've carried of what, what it means to be human. So buckle up, this is a long one. What does it mean then to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to say that the garden is our place of deepest identity? In part, it is to say that wisdom is deep within us, deeper than the ignorance of what we've done or become. That wisdom's deeper. It is to say that the passion of God for what is just and right is deep within, deeper than any apathy or participation in wrong that has crippled us. To be made in the image of God is to say that creativity is at the core of our being, deeper than any barrenness that has dominated our lives and relationships. And above all, it is to say that love and the desire to give ourselves away to one another in love is at the heart of who we are, deeper than any fear or hatred that holds us hostage. Deep within us is a longing for union, for our genesis is in the one from whom all things have come. Our home is the garden, and deep within us is the yearning to hear its song again. Take a few seconds to let that sink in. Here's how I've paraphrased all of the above to probably every one of my spiritual directees and maybe a few others along the way. That which is deepest within you, dear friends, is not opposed to God. That which is deepest within you is in God. Come on. To say this, to truly own this has massive implications for how we see ourselves, including our deepest physical, sexual, and emotional desires and longings. It also profoundly affects how we see one another, even in the midst of the terrible failings and the falseness in our lives and in the world. So against that backdrop, let's consider some definitions. These are from author and speaker Deborah Hirsch, as quoted in Villadis. Spirituality, she says, can be described as a vast longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to probe, and to understand our world. And beyond that, it is the inner compulsion 
to connect with the eternal other, which is God. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by God on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. Sexuality can be described as the deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. It struck me in reading these that knowing and being known is often the way we describe our inward direction in our neighborhood groups. When's the last time you thought of your participation in a neighborhood group as an expression of your sexuality? And is the fact that we're also possibly feeling a bit weirded out by me asking that question is one clear indicator that we've not done well at integrating our spirituality and our sexuality. We've got to learn to integrate. And we need to learn to distinguish between social sexuality and genital sexuality. These are helpful terms from theologian Marva Dawn. She shows from the earliest parts of scripture how these two are evident. So Genesis 1, humans are, as we've said, made in the image of God. Nothing can change that. And then, given the holy task of relating to the rest of the created order in ways that call attention to the harmony and interdependence of all things, a deep longing for fellowship and belonging is part of our divine DNA. This is social sexuality. In Genesis 2, we see the other dimension. God lovingly establishes a means of covenant love whereby the belonging takes on a particular form. And so in the powerful act of sexual union, we vulnerably offer ourselves to another, mysteriously reflecting the love of the Trinity that permeates all things. All things. Philodus puts it this way. Genital sexuality is not just about our bodies colliding with each other. It's an act of self-giving, mutually indwelling love that points to something beyond ourselves. So when we fail to discern and distinguish between these two kinds of sexuality, our desires are prone to go in directions that don't reflect that which is deepest within us. So one obvious example is the misguided assumption that many in our culture hold that if I'm going to truly belong and be seen by another person, I must engage in an act of genital sexuality. Now, at some point in each of our lives, we have looked for love in the wrong places. And the story from shortly after the beginning has often been one of deep alienation from our bodies. So in Genesis 1 and 2, once again, things are off to an amazing start. God creates this world of abundance and beauty and diversity and delight, and God generously shares the world with people, creating the first humans to be caretakers of all God has made. The author of Genesis paints a picture of wholeness and freedom that happens between the man and the woman in the garden. They were both naked and unashamed, it says in Genesis 2, verse 25. So much is contained in that little phrase. This is humanity living in the most unhindered joy imaginable. Their love for each other is free from shaming. It's free from comparison. It's free from objectification. 
There is unity between God, creation, and their bodies. The story goes on, and God offers a tour of a completely outfitted paradise and sets an important boundary in place. They aren't supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is God doing in setting this down? Well, God establishes the dignity and capacity for freedom. God creates the conditions for choice. It's the ability to choose love, free of coercion, something that befits bodies and souls made in God's likeness, yeah? Soon after, a serpent enters the scene, seduces them into eating from the tree, and we come to one of the most tragic verses in the Bible. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the result of having their eyes opened, ironically, is distorted vision. Before, they were seeing one another and themselves with the pure eyes of God, and now they were seeing with the eyes of human fallenness. As Villadas points out, their eyes being opened is the anti-miracle of the New Testament, where Jesus frequently opens the eyes of the blind, helping people see both physically and spiritually. But in Genesis 3, the way sin opens our eyes paradoxically falsifies that deeper vision by which we're meant to see each other. As a result, we often live ashamed by our exposure. We're self-conscious of our vulnerability and feeling the need to protect ourselves from being laid bare. To sum it up, beneath our sexuality, there often lies a powerful root of shame. Shame is usually the reason that we keep sowing fig leaves. Thankfully, the story doesn't end with fig leaves. The golden thread in our royal garments has not been removed. The image of God is still the core of who we are, but the image has been tarnished by sin. There's another Celtic teacher, John Scotus Eugenia from Ireland in the 19th century, refers to sin as an infection. He calls it a leprosy of the soul. And just as leprosy disfigures the human face, makes it appear ugly, so sin distorts the countenance of the soul and makes it appear monstrous. And just like leprosy is a disease of insensitivity, of the loss of feeling, so sin leads us into an insensitivity to what is deepest in us. So we start treating each other as if we are not made in the image of God. Ariagina notes that in the Gospels, when, when Jesus heals the lepers, he doesn't give them new faces. He restores them to their true faces, to the freshness of their original countenance. In other words, grace reconnects us to what is first and deepest within us. It restores us to the root of our well-being, which is deeper. I'm going to keep saying that. It's deeper than the infections that threaten our minds and souls and relationships. Thank you, Celtic theologians. That is how God wants to form us. That's the trajectory. That is the work of grace. It reconnects us to what is first, to what is deepest, and... Not only is grace able 
to reconnect us with what's deepest, to form all of us in our sexuality into the image of Christ, I am choosing to trust that grace is actively doing this work, even now. It's at work. And one of the ways I know this is because of how Jesus lived his own sexuality. We're going to look at that briefly in a moment. But first, I want to offer a framework for how the church and our surrounding culture have often, often misaligned sexuality and spirituality, how we fail to integrate. There are three diets, diets of sexual formation. This is from a Catholic author named Christopher West. He talks about the starvation diet, the fast food diet, and the banquet. So in essence, what this framework suggests is that we've often had our sexuality formed by sexual repression, in the case of starvation, or sexual reduction, or flippancy. And in the process, we've missed the larger feast that sits in front of us. So starvation diet. A lot of folks in the church, I mean a lot, live on a starvation diet. This is the diet that sees our longings and desires, especially sexual ones, as parts of our humanity that need to be rejected, suppressed, or ignored. This kind of theology is so prevalent that even talking about desire, sex, longings, or eros is done in whispers, if it's done at all. And friends, this is an ancient pattern in Christian history. Come with me to the third century. Origen, an influential father of the church, viewed sexual passion as an obstacle to experiencing true joy in God. According to him, quote, physical pleasure and sexual experiences nurtured a counter-sensibility. They resulted in a dulling of the spirit's true capacity for joy. Origen believed, even in marriage, that sexual intercourse coarsened the spirit. According to tradition, Origen took his theology to its logical conclusion. He castrated himself so as to eradicate any desire for the women he would teach. Now, whether that's historically accurate or not, it's certainly part of the pervasive narrative that informs how many people view the human experience. Sexual desire equals bad, and it needs to be, well, cut off. We also see the starvation diet in St. Augustine, arguably the most influential theologian in church history. In his confessions, Augustine articulated his struggle. As a young man, he felt like a slave to every sexual impulse. In one of his more amusing reflections, he prayed, give me chastity and self-restraint, but don't do it just yet. Just hold off a bit, God. In his striking conversion, he tried and struggled to love Christ with his body, but found it extremely difficult to do so. And it led him to draw theological conclusions that viewed sexual desire in pejorative ways. Augustine saw his longings as roadblocks to loving union with God, instead of the energy within that points toward union. And this line of thinking would resurface throughout church history. We see it in the revivalist and holiness movements. We see it in the Pentecostal movement, as well as in evangelical purity culture, just to name a few. And the extremely sad and painful, harmful 
consequence in this is seeing our bodies and pleasure and sexuality as impediments to true spirituality. We may be recognizing that this is a mindset that's shaped more by Gnosticism than by a vision of creation anchored in the Hebrew scriptures. Really quickly, Gnosticism is an ancient teaching that regarded the material world, stuff we can see and touch, our bodies in particular, as prisons from which our spirits must be set free. And so in the process of attaining gnosis, which means special knowledge, we're not even really sure, never been sure exactly what that is, but we're supposed to attain it. And we're supposed to be then released from the constraints of our physicality and ascend to unity with spirit. It's 2021, and this pernicious heresy of Gnosticism isn't letting up. It keeps coming back in new forms, trying to convince us that our bodies, our desires, and our longings are not as important as our souls. Oh, I've got words for what I want to say about Gnosticism, but I'll keep it to the words that are on here. Okay, fast food diet. So that's starvation. Fast food diet, if the starvation is about repression, the fast food diet is about reduction. This diet is the attempt to reduce our deepest longings to our physical desires. The diet says, whatever your desire is, you deserve to have it met. Does it feel right? Go for it. In a fast food diet, our souls are split from our bodies in a similar but different way from the starvation diet. In the starvation diet, the soul is exalted to the point of denying the body. In the fast food diet, the body is exalted to the point of denying the soul and the soul-numbing pain that we've experienced. The danger of this diet is that it is a cheap imitation of the banquet. We might feel satisfaction in the moment, but over time it makes us sick. In the fast food diet, we, we try to suck out infinity from finite sources. And eventually we find that we've placed too much weight on other people or on sexual experiences to satisfy the deep needs of our souls, yet we go on trying. So when love and intimacy are supplanted by Tinder or porn, we end up in a vicious cycle of want. People become objects for our gratification. We lose touch with our own humanity. We ravenously search for new ways to stimulate ourselves. And consequently, we find ourselves imprisoned, endlessly searching for what can only be found in God. G.K. Chesterton famously said, the one who rings the bell at the brothel unconsciously does so seeking God. In other words, when we find ourselves trapped by or trapped in our misdirected desires rather than those that are deepest within us, even then, there is something more profound at work. It's the mystery. Villadas summarizes, the starvation diet has no imagination to see sexual desire as a means toward God. The fast food diet relegates sexual desire to being its God. Both are missing the point. So, in the spirit of the third way, in the face of these two images, what does the gospel offer? 
a banquet, a feast, an invitation. Whether we are single or married to a life of communion and joy and delight. The banquet reminds us that from the beginning, we were made for community and intimacy with each other. The deepest longings planted in our made-in-the-image-of-God selves often get lost or covered over or pushed to the side, but they are not gone. The golden thread has not been removed. You and I are not broken. We have not come unraveled. We are bruised, yet whole. And the source of love continues to invite us and draw us and, yes, woo us into greater wholeness. So our sexual desires, when ordered appropriately, bring us to union with God and communion with each other. The love of God does not remove our desires, it reorders them. So let's talk about something that we also don't come to very often. Let's talk about the sexual energy of Jesus. It's in Jesus that we see the banquet both embodied and offered. Jesus is the fullness of humanity and divinity. He shows us most clearly what God is like and what humanity is invited into. He's our prototype, the model human we are called to imitate, which is to say that Jesus' sexuality was not diminished or disordered or deficient. When some of us think of Jesus, we imagine his body being devoid of sexual energy. Maybe some of us think of him as asexual. But if he is fully human, he must be fully sexual as well. And to be sexual doesn't mean to be sexually active. It doesn't mean that Jesus lusted after others, although scripture does tell us he faced every form of temptation, yet was without sin. Maybe some of us need to be reminded today that being tempted is not the same as sin. As far as we know from scripture, Jesus never had intercourse with another person. And yet, his sexuality and humanity were lived to the full. He connected with others intimately and compassionately and sacrificially. In his death, he offers his body as gift. Jesus enters into loving union with others throughout his life. And in so doing, he communes with the Father. And the inverse is also true. Because Jesus lives in loving union with God, he communes with the world. There's a dynamism in those connections. This is the banquet. Sexual intercourse in its place is a beautiful sign of God's love, but it's not the only way to live one's sexuality to the fullest. A deeply formed life takes the idea of God putting on human flesh seriously. The incarnation means that when Jesus walked down the street, you could actually say, there goes God. This is the great mystery that we've been invited into. But the incarnation isn't just about seeing God with skin on through Jesus. It's the lens through which we're meant to look at everything. Everything. Jesus became human and died and was raised to life. So through Jesus then, God unequivocally sanctified creation. 
because God in Christ literally touched the world. All that is seen and unseen pulsates with divine life. That's why our response to the coming of God in Jesus is to see our own bodies and everything in the created order as absolutely sacred. Whew. Now, sacramental life. Let's talk about this for just a brief minute. We're nearly there. When people think of sacrament, baptism and the Lord's Supper often come to mind, right? In many Christian traditions, sacrament is a particular means of grace that God offers. Now, there's nothing magical about the elements of bread and wine, and there is certainly nothing magical in the wafer and juice. Let's be real. But when we receive them in faith, the Spirit does something. The elements point us to a larger reality that's beyond what we can see with our eyes. I was reminded of this as we started being able to practice communion again after so long. Something mysterious. There were tears. Something beautiful happens even when the elements are in tiny antiseptic single-serve containers. Mystery of mysteries. But what if sacrament is meant to go beyond these individual moments, Lord's Supper, table, baptism? What would it be like to live sacramentally in all of life? To see all of creation as a means by which we can encounter the living God. Loved ones, if God is present through wafer and juice, through water and bread and oil and wine, surely God is present in and through our bodies as well. Villetus says it well. Our bodies, in their glory and fragility, in their energy and weakness are means by which God meets us. To put it simply, we are not just to receive sacraments, we are to become them. Yeah. Yeah. We are to become them, whether through our compassionate love for our neighbors, our shared intimacy with friends, our kindness toward our children, or through the making of love with our spouses, our entire lives point to something beyond ourselves. It's a good word. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about some practices, as I mentioned, that can help us, help form us more deeply in our bodies, in our sexuality. We've been formed in so many ways. Some of them are healthy. Others are absolutely not. Shame and regret and grief are real burdens we live under. Some of us have been deeply wounded, been abused or shunned or ignored, even by people we thought would protect and nurture us. We've used others. We've been used ourselves. We've received debilitating messages. We've rehearsed scripts that have traumatized us. But this is not the end of our stories. Hope is also real. 
Love has come. Through Jesus, God is forming us in that love. Grace is reconnecting us to that which is deeper. We are whole and we are being invited into greater wholeness. Our wounds have not unraveled the golden thread. In Christ, shame does not have the last word. Thanks be to God. So yes, it's true. Adam and Eve hid behind a tree, naked, conquered by shame. It's also true that Jesus hung on a tree, naked, and conquered shame. This is the good news. May you know it deep in your bones today.